Today on the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. We open our doors once again to one of our biggest Patreon supporters, Steve Carpets. This is part one of a two-part show where Steve and I geek out about everything film music and listen to selections of choral music that he brought with him for you and me to enjoy. Thank you very much for tuning in to The Flagship Show here on the Cinematic Sound radio podcast, which begins now. Since 1996, this is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Welcome to the show. We have a real exciting program for you. I have a great chat with our guest today, Steve Carpets. He's one of our biggest Patreon supporters, one of our newest supporters in the highest tier that we offer, which is actually sold out. And and funny thing is, he wanted so bad to get into that group, which was actually only comprising of two people. Um, I had to actually ask the other two if it was okay if Steve could upgrade his uh, membership. And of course they said yes. So Steve has the uh, opportunity to not only program today's show, but he got to host the program with me as well. And the other two guests that did this previously Joe Wiles and William Welch. You can hear those shows on the Cinematic Sound Radio podcast as well. But before we get to the chat, I want to let you know that Cinematic Sound Radio does, yes, have a Patreon. And if you join the Patreon, uh, you can get a whole load of interesting perks. Uh, There are a couple of tiers available where, one, you can just say thank you by offering a couple of bucks. And if that's all you want to do, then that's fine. Or you can join the Cinematic Sound Radio All Request Show. We have a new one coming up in the next few months, which is actually going to be hosted by Jason Drury. Um, You can also get the opportunity to program your very own show by picking the tracks that you want to hear on the program. And that costs a little bit more, but we have a whole bunch of people uh, signed up for that uh, perk as well. And you get to join the Discord, and you get to join the great community that we have here at Cinematic Sound Radio. So if you are interested in joining the Cinematic Sound Radio Patreon, head over to patreon.com slash cinematic sound radio, and we really do appreciate any support that you might uh, send our way. And that helps out with numerous things, and we are very transparent about these these payments as well, which includes uh, server space, new equipment. Um, we actually just paid again for another round of SOCAN payments for our license to play music here on the program. So there's a lot of uh, things that kind of that help go towards the show and make sure that the show stays online and on the air. And so with that all out of the way, 
Let's welcome Steve Carpets to the program. Good evening, Eric. How are you? I'm fabulous. I'm glad that we are. Uh, we finally made this work. Uh, we were supposed to record this last week, but um, I was having uh, some work issues. <laughs> I'm still stupid busy, but you know, I'm glad that we finally got a chance to talk. I, I always love talking to to my fans. And, uh, you know, the Patreon is, is um, you know, giving me the opportunity to do that. And, uh, you know, my conversations with Joe and Will previously have been fantastic. And I'm really looking forward to having a chat with you tonight. Yes, same here. Uh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Oh, anytime. And you know what? I appreciate everything that you have done for the show, uh, your support. It's been absolutely fantastic. And that's why you're here. And, you know, we talked about the, the Patreon um, in the intro. So, um, this is an exclusive uh, tier here at Cinematic Sound Radio, and I think actually didn't didn't you ask me to open up one more spot because there was only two in the beginning? I did, I did. I I was like, you know what? I wonder if he'd be willing to open up a third spot. I sent off an email, and I think it was like, I don't know, maybe like two point three milliseconds before you responded. Absolutely, absolutely. So <laughs> I jumped right on it. Well, then that's fantastic. And, you know, Joe and Will were more, more than happy to uh, to share the spotlight. Um, but it is, yeah, it's an exclusive tier. I wanted to give it to, like, the super fans. And uh, you three have, are definitely the, the super fans of Cinematic Sound Radio. So y- you get the exclusive opportunity to uh, to have a chat with me or and also to have a chat with the rest of the audience and, and play the music that you want to hear on this show. So, um yeah, I, I know there's a couple of other people that have even asked to open it up to even more people. And I, I really would love to. I just don't have the time to kind of get to everything. So I've actually had to say no to a couple of other people. So, um, yeah, like I said, if you ever disappear or Will or Joe, then the spot will open. But from now on, it's just three spots. And that's the way it's going to be for a very, very long time. So, um but yeah, I, again, I thank you for your support, and I really do appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. I mean, you know, it's the music that brings us together and uh, opportunities like this to sit and chat and discuss uh, what we like and what we don't like and what's fantastic and all that good stuff, right? Like just the sharing, the common bond, right? The stuff that brings us together. And, you know, in, in these times, you, you need stuff like this, right? You need the break. You need the good stuff. You need the stuff that you cling to in the hard times, right? And this is one of the things for me, music. So um, again, I, I couldn't be more appreciative of the opportunity and I'm more than glad to help. Yeah, before we even get to um, get to music, um, let's find out a little bit about you. Uh, you know, where were you born? Where are you from? Um, you know, what do you do? Uh, tell me, Tell me more about Steve. Yeah, I'm strictly uh, U.S. East Coast. I was born in Connecticut, uh, moved to Massachusetts when I was seven. Uh, lived there pretty much ever since. I work for a uh, local electrical utility in the greater Boston area. I've been there for uh, almost 25 years now. So, um, you know, that's it's a hectic business in itself. You know, it's uh, one of those industries that's... Uh, on the go 24 seven. So you know, I work some, uh, overnight work, overnight shifts, work, uh, afternoon shifts, a little bit of everything. Right. Um, you know, but it's a, you know, it's a public utility. So, uh, 
it uh, just comes with the territory. So, um, do you enjoy what you do? It is a, a fantastic job, and I know many people can't say that, but I love my job. My job, it's it's different every day. It's something that, like in an emergency, something like that, you can feel like you've accomplished something for the greater good. And um, yeah, it's just always been, um, it's always been something that I've enjoyed. I, I, I can honestly say that. I mean, that's all you can really ask for, you know, finding a job that really isn't a job. You know, you wake up in the morning and I mean, yeah, it could, like you said, it could be stressful, um, but if it doesn't feel like work, then I think you might have found the thing that you, you've wanted to do your whole life. And um, I mean, I couldn't imagine doing anything else other than what I'm doing. And I, I constantly talk to my boss about that because we go through um, tons of different uh, companies and we see different types of jobs. And I'm a videographer and editor as a full-time job. And, you know, we'll talk to people and we'll see what they do. And we at times just look at each other going, I don't think I could you know, stand on that factory floor for, for 12 hours. And you know what I mean? And then again, I mean, I'm spoiled. I work at home, but I'm doing what I, I doing what I like. I can't say I love it. Um, but it's within the industry that I grew up wanting to get into at least, you know, shooting video and editing video. So it's, it's, it's close to kind of movie making, but it's, um, you know, it, it's a different type of movie making, but at least, you know, when I wake up, I'm not like, Oh man, I got to go and do that nine to five again. So yeah, I, I, you, you can only hope to that, you know, everybody can, can appreciate something like that. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, I started out in customer service, um, just got it. The job is a foot in the door kind of thing. And, you know, now I work out in the field and, you know, we work with everything from as low as 120 volts to as high as 345,000 volt. Wow. So, you know, yeah, I mean, it's dangerous at the same time, right? You know, like accidents happen and, you know, people get hurt on the job and there have been even fatalities here and there. And, you know, you just, but you have to be mindful of it, right? Like there's a, a safe way to do it. There's a way to minimize risk and stuff like that. But again, it's it's something that fits my personality, right? So uh, when you talk about like jobs that you just go, yeah, this is meant for me, Um I'm not going to say that it was meant for me, but it's definitely a good fit for me, right? Like, again, I can feel more days than not that uh, I'm at a job that I enjoy, <clears throat> despite all the the bureaucracy and the red tape that comes with every job, right? <laughs> yeah, like, and, you know, and all the personalities and stuff like that and all the stuff, you know, you sit and I'm just groaning about, oh, do I have to work with this person today? Yada, 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 right? That stuff we all do, you know, that's the common stuff. That's the stuff we all do, right? For sure. But what make, but what makes it worth for us as an individual, right? Like again, I, I found something that I enjoy, so no complaints. Yeah, and that's all you could ask for. Let's move on to uh, music and soundtracks, of course, um, specifically. So, when did you when did you discover film music, and you know when did it become really a passion for you? Well. This is not a, a day that I'm terribly proud of, <laughs> to tell you the truth. So my first job, the day I turned 16, I got a job at a, a local movie theater. Um, 
And one of the perks of that job was that, of course, you could come and see all the movies that you wanted for free. Um, even so far as there was a second cinema in uh, a neighboring town, and they had a deal worked out where you could actually go and see movies there for free, and their employees could come see movies at our theater for free, right? So it was a nice little, you know, quaint um, arrangement, but it meant that, you know, because the way they worked it was they w- we would get movies from certain, um, like Warner Brothers, TriStar, they would get like Universal. So we weren't competing against each other, right? They kind of divvied them up according to um, who was putting the movies out. So you could always, you could see all the movies. You were only limited to seeing half of them. But um, the point being is that I got a, right, I got a job at a movie theater. <laughs> I could go, so I could see movies for free. Um, and of course, being 16 at the time was also around the time that you get your first car and you start to um, enter the dating scene. So I, <laughs> I brought a, a girl to see a movie because, of course, you know, I didn't have much money and it was free. And right. so um, the theater itself um, was old-fashioned in the sense that uh, actually had a curtain draped down over the screen. And before the movie would start, um, the curtain would raise just as the lights were going up. And um, the movie that we went to see was uh, Batman. Oh, wow. And, right, first date. And so the curtain is rising up, the lights are dimming, and then I'm hit with uh, the Danny Elfman opening, just that kind of da na na na. And from that point on, I proceeded to forget that I was on a date, and <laughs> I was just so captured by this opening, this music, right? The, it just I it was our only date. <laughs> But that's how I discovered cinematic music. Was this uh, was was Danny Elfman's? It was the first soundtrack I can re- ever remember. Going, this is amazing. I want to know who composed this. I want to see if I can get myself a copy. And so that was what 1989. Yeah, I think it was Batman, right? Yep. And so that was my start. Wow. Right. That's kind of. I mean. For for someone your age, I mean, I was, I think I was about 12 or 13 at that time, maybe just turning 14, but I could always remember like in my childhood, you know, loving movies and, and knowing that the music was there, but like, did you have a love affair with movies before that time or was this like oh my God, something has ju- extraordinary has just happened right now seeing Batman and where has this been all my life? So, yes, I like to watch movies. I wouldn't consider myself a cinephile. Um, the thing that um, I became aware of right at that point was the music behind it. And to be honest with you, I have a massive collection of soundtracks and scores to movies that I have never seen and probably will never see. In fact, um, 
if you, I, I am often, well, I'm not embarrassed anymore, but the list of classic movies that I have never seen, but could tell you, you know, track lists of, um, is a mile long, right? Like I, I, I'm prone to appreciate the music much more than the movies themselves. Not to say that I don't like movies, right? Because I mean, I grew up with movies, um, you know, it was, uh, the age, the HBO and Cinemax and all, all the pay, t- pay channels came out and stuff like that. So I certainly enjoy movies, but I definitely enjoy soundtracks a lot more and the, and the music behind it. So what is it about like soundtrack music in particular that, that captivates you? Um, I've, I mean, before I had even discovered soundtracks, I had always been attracted to music in itself. Um, I played the violin for five years from, I think like nine, I think it was nine when I started, you know, I, I think it's part of the, the intangible behind the music, right? Like there's just something about music, good music, what I think is good music that speaks to me. Um, you know, it's, it's fulfilling in a way that nothing else seems to be able to do. It's funny because I was having a discussion with someone the other day about, we were talking about words and language and just about how words oftentimes are just rude as a way of communicating because you can sit here and you can say, well, you know, you can ask a simple question like, well, what do you like about music? And I could spill 10,000 words at you and still not come close to really describing, right? Like that inner feeling. To go back to the earlier um, example, like, you know, that moment at 16 years old, you know, you've got this old classic style cinema with the curtain coming up and lights, you know, it, it's theatric, right? And then of course, that's what it's supposed to be. But it just caught me at that right moment, right? Like that, you know, I, I, <laughs> like I said, it, it, it's hard to describe. Like I could just sit and listen to music. Like I, I could walk around with my earbuds on all the time and you know, I would be perfectly content, you know, especially, you know, to tie into the earlier point, like, you know, you work at a job, then a lot of times there's loud machinery and a lot of noise going on. You know, I worked in Boston for nine years and, you know, it's city traffic and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a comfort. It's something I, to say a love affair, I guess is close to say it's fulfilling is probably even closer, right? Like it's just a sense of completeness to even think about like there was a time in when music was pretty much all people had for entertainment, right? Like to, to go back to like, um, uh, to tie into tonight's theme just slightly, you know, one of my favorite choral pieces is, um, I'm going to totally butcher this. Uh, it's, uh, Latin spem in Aleum, I think is, uh, how it's pronounced. It's by Thomas Tallis. And I believe it's a 48 piece, um, and it's all, it's all chorus, right? So it's there's 48 different voices, and they're split up into eight different sections, and they're all singing at the same time, right? And just to, like, think, like, that was what they had, right? And, and I think that's 
what it really inspired uh, my choice for the theme tonight. You know, to, to be able to to go to a place like an amphitheater, which is basically designed for sound, right? And and what that experience must have been like, right? Where you can probably physically feel the sound coming from the chorus, right? Because it's just echoing off the walls. It's all around you. It, it probably was an amazing and somewhat religious experience in, in uh, a more broad sense of the word. Not to get too far on a tangent, but, you know, there have been studies about, like, the effect of sound waves on people and how, you know, we drown a lot of the sound waves out from the universe. And, you know, it, it was it was the way we evolved. I'm going way off on a tangent. No, and, and, it make, and it makes sense. And, I mean, what was coming to my mind were, were actually, it was two things. And you said, you know, you know, way back then, um, you know, all they had, you know, with even without Im- instruments was their own instrument, which was the voice. But, I mean, I've had this conversation uh, with my wife recently and I asked her, I said, how, how long do you think it's been that we've had recorded music? And, <laughs> and she's like, well, it's been like, you know, a hundred some odd years. And I'm like, I, I don't even think it's. It might even be that, but I mean, like good sounding recordings that where you can listen to and go, yeah, you know, that, that sounds like it was, you know, we went to a concert and it was being performed live. I mean, to think that we've only had this type of technology for such a short amount of time when there are centuries of music out there that the only way you could hear it is if it was performed live. And I don't know how in the world that, you know, I, I, I got access to 7,000 soundtracks in my library and I can listen to them at, you know, snap of a finger. Um, but I mean, the privilege of listening to music back then without having a recording must have been absolutely thrilling. And so I understand exactly what, what you're talking about. One other point that, I mean, before we get into the, the, the show, and I'm actually really fascinated by, by your description of music. You know, we're, we are a, you know, cinematic sound radios, soundtracks, it's, you know, film, TV, video game music, but you're talking about music. And I, I don't think I've, I've heard you say, you know, like score or soundtrack. So I'm curious whether you have a love affair with, with music. Like, are there other genres that you like? I mean, when you heard Batman, was that like the first time an, an orchestra kind of smacked you right in the face or had you heard it before? And maybe you haven't, you know, heard it in, you know, this type of, of style before. So, you know, what is it about music? It's not just soundtracks for you, is it? No, definitely not. I mean, soundtracks is my main focus, I guess, if you would call that. I mean, if you looked at my uh, entire music collection, you know, I mean, it, it would be, the majority would be soundtracks for sure. Um, I mean, to say... I mean, it was definitely new, and, and again, it. I would have to say it was the combination of elements um, with with the setting, and you know, um, having never been exposed to that before. You know, like I said, I did play violin, but you know, you're playing pepperoni pizza, right? You do, do you know what pepperoni pizzas? Yeah, where it's you know, it's just da 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 right? So. I hadn't seen an orchestra before or anything like that. 
everything I'd listened to music wise before that was probably just pop radio, right? Like we still had Casey Case somewhere around back then, and you listen to American Top Forty on the weekends. I guess in looking at the type of music that I like outside of soundtracks, um, I mean, definitely classical music. I, I'll listen to pretty much anything as long as it, it clicks with me inside, right? Like. When I listen to pop music, what I listen for is the instrumentation, and I listen. I don't necessarily listen to the lyrics, although, of course, you know, like if you hear a song a hundred times, you know, you just kind of pick those up by osmosis. But it's a combination of the instruments, and then looking at the voice as itself an instrument, right? And and how does that play a, against, say, um, you know, the guitar, or you know the keyboard or the synthesizer or, or whatever instrumentation is going on in the background, right? So, I mean, I guess you could say I look at pop music with a a symphonic ear. Well, that how do you look at something with an ear? <laughs> no, and no, and then that, but that, that, that does make sense. It does. Um, Cause I do the same thing with, you know, like I, my, my favorite genre is, you know, you know, rock and roll. I, I grew up in the grunge era. Um, and, but I like kind of anthem-esque, you know, guitar rock, big melodies, even within like guitar solos. But I also love, um, you know, the instrumentation, stripping away a, a bass from the rhythm guitar to the, to the main guitar, to the voice, to the drums. You know, what other little things are they, are they adding in that, you know, makes it interesting musically? Like Batted to Hell is something that just blew my socks off when I was a kid but I just think that it was because of the instrumentation of it. I mean, it was also a, a grand, you know, 10 minute piece of music that was like nothing I'd ever heard before, but there's just something very cinematic about it. And I find that I, I can get that within like, uh, I love this. I, like, I also like the storytelling again. I'm not one that really pays much attention to lyrics, but I also, but I like the storytelling aspect of, of certain music. So Right, and and another an example along a similar line for me would be like "Appetite for Destruction" by Guns N' Roses. Right, like everybody knows, you know. I mean, it, it, "Welcome to the Jungle" was like you know an insta hit, right? But I can remember the first time I listened to that album with earphones on, and you you realize that what they've done is that they've got two lead guitars playing. And in each ear, they're playing something different, right? They're playing different notes and they're working and they're playing off of each other. And and that to me was amazing, right? Like I'm not the world's biggest Guns N' Roses fan, um, you know, but like to me, that album stands out as just like an, an amazing accomplishment, right? Like something, you know, that I, again, I had never been exposed to not to say that it hadn't been done before, but for me, it was, um, the watershed moment where I was like, this is, you know, this is what I groove on right here. Right? right. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought up appetite cause I am a huge Guns N' Roses fan. So, um, you know, that's bonus points for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was in my eighties hair band phase for a while. Right. Yeah. Um, I think we all you know, were at that time. Sure. Sure. Um, but even, you know, like, you know, it was, it was Dev Lever, but it was also like U2 and it was also, you know, Pet Shop Boys and, um, all those great, um, British bands, you know, the eighties is just so rich Depeche Mode, you know, I'm not a big synthesizer, but this, 
person, but there's just something about Depeche Mode that again, you know, and, and maybe it was the melodies they, um, that they played around with. It was just, you know, a lot of minors and off chord sounds and it just, it just resonated with me. They'd done something that I hadn't heard before. Right. And so I, um, then again, another group that's just great to listen to, um, with earphones on, although to get back to the earlier point, there are a lot of times where like I would prefer to be able to sit in the car and listen to music as opposed to listening with headphones on because I just enjoy the feel right of of the sound as much as I do I, it's part to me it's part of the experience to feel it at the same time as listening to it right um my friend uh Jared who's out in California who helped me put together the list uh for tonight's program I uh, used to have this Pontiac Ferrero and it had the world's best bass system in it. And it was just, we would sit and listen to Depeche Mode um, for hours. It was just great. You just drive around and listen, right? Like like all kids do. You listen into your tunes and just kind of, you know, out <laughs> causing trouble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I do have a few other things I want to ask you, but you know, we've, we've talked for almost about a half an hour and I think... Um, I think the listeners are kind of eager to hear what your your theme is uh, for this show. So let's kind of jump into that. And I'll, I'll, I'll bring these other questions up a little bit later on in the show. So tell us about your playlist and uh, why you selected each of the tracks for this playlist. So I think probably based on a conversation you have an idea of... Um, what it may be and why I chose it, but um, just to expand on it a little bit further, uh, the theme is um, tracks that have some type of chorus or uh, choral works in them, um, whether it's a full chorus, whether it's a single voice. Again, I mean, human voice is an instrument. I mean, it's it's infinite in variety, right? Like you can say, well, this is a chorus. Yes, right. That, but as opposed to say like a violin where, you know, you're only going to get so many flavors of a violin, a, a chorus you can have in infinite variety. And then, you know, no greater compliment to an orchestra than um, than a chorus in my mind. And it, nothing catches my ear quicker than as, as soon as you start to hear the voices in the background or the foreground or wherever it is. Um, always, always been a favorite internal category of mine so um, I figured it was a good uh, first selection uh, for the show for my show yeah and uh, I mean I I did maybe a couple choral shows back on FM I've never returned to it and I don't know why because you know when you hear a chorus I mean a, a well integrated chorus into a score just elevates it like um, no other device can you know, you could take a 90 piece orchestra that's just going absolutely nuts and that can be impressive. But then of course the chorus comes in and you're like, Oh, wow, I got to pay attention to this. I had that reaction to this very first track that you brought with you from, wow, this film gets crapped on a lot. And, but I have things, I have fond memories for first night, which was released in 1995 because it was one of the first films that I saw that introduced me to Jerry Goldsmith. And again, I was just starting to kind of 
get into soundtracks at this time and, and really associating certain music with composers and, and, and figuring out the composers. I always liked scores and soundtracks, but all of a sudden it was like, oh, that sounds like, oh, that guy who wrote uh, Jerry Goldsmith. Yeah, wrote that score. So, um, you know, there's a great moment when we see Camelot for the first time in this movie, and that just blew me away. But all the choral material right at the, the end is simply sublime. So why don't you tell us about the first track that you uh, brought with you for your choral playlist? Well, anyone who knows me uh, knows that Jerry Goldsmith would easily be hands down my favorite composer. For the record, my favorite score of his of all time would be Poltergeist. Um, that's not for this discussion, but it is a, I have yet to find anything that trumps it. And I mean, it, to say what it is about Goldsmith, that it, it, it's, it's the melody, it's the innovation. Um, you know, you look at his score for Alien and it was just, you know, it was, again, nothing I'd ever heard before. And it, it was just, how did he put that together for that kind of movie and make it all work? It just seems in, unfathomable, right? Um, but yeah, first night, I don't remember a tremendous amount of the movie, but I mean, the score is as soon as it came out, like... Definitely um, picked it up, and it's been in my collection ever since. And I mean, the track is just—it's just great. I mean, when you need something to get you pumped up a little bit, right? Like this is one of the go-to ones. Driving late at night, you need to stay awake, or you just want to kind of <clears throat> make yourself feel good for a little bit. Um, I mean, it's got it all—the the bold, brash chorus and the horns in the background—and it all works together. Couldn't think of a better first uh, track to start us off with. Yeah, it really is a, a good score. And I mean, it's, like I said, one of the first Goldsmiths I ever owned. And I found it in a, in a used bin for probably like $7. I'm like, yeah, I'll take this home. And again, I only remembered moments of it. But then when I played the whole thing, I was like, wow, this is, this is pretty spectacular. However, um, within the film music community and even somewhat in the Jerry Goldsmith kind of community, the 90s Jerry Goldsmith music kind of gets dumped on as he, I mean, Jerry Goldsmith would admit this, that his style significantly changed after Total Recall, where he simplified his music. But some fans feel that that's a, that's a, a negative where I don't really have a problem with it. But then again, Jerry Goldsmith isn't my favorite composer of all time, but he's in kind of my Mount Rushmore composers. But it, it's something that never really bothered me with the change of style. So, you know, you're a you're a huge Jerry Goldsmith fan. You know, what do you think about his output from, let's say, you know, 1990 on and the, the kind of simplification of his music, for the lack of a better word? What you have to realize is that the 90s output from Goldsmith was probably my first exposure to him. Right. And so when you get that type of first impression, right, like and you start to hear things, well, you know, you know, this isn't his best stuff and yada, yada. And you're like, what are you talking about? This is the best stuff I've ever heard from. Him. Right. And, and, and so it, from my context, like I don't have a problem with it. Right. Like it, to me, that's the good stuff and it always will be the good stuff. Right. You know, total, you mentioned total recall. I mean, that was another one. Um, I probably ran into that movie every time they showed the scene with Quado, right? Where he puts the he puts his hand on the 
on the mutant and the uh, Schwarzenegger, and he has the flashback. And you know, the, the, uh, what's the track called? Uh, the mutant. The mutant, exactly. I mean, I must have run in every time that track played just to see that scene and hear that cut because I mean, you know, it, it's again, it, it, that's the stuff that I came up with in, in the Goldsmith. So I don't see a problem with any of it, <laughs> honestly. I either like it or I don't. And I'm not one of those people that will sit and compare the composer's bodies of work um, against itself, right? Like it either works for me or it doesn't. I'm pretty cut and dried in that respect. And that makes complete sense. I discovered Goldsmith around the same time that you did as well. So, you know, I didn't have the context of his older work to to compare it to. And I mean, I find I have a lot of fun doing that. I like going back and analyzing the score and, and hearing the, the differences, but I never felt like in the nineties, you know, Jerry Goldsmith was, was doing anything less than his best. And especially when he was talking about it, especially after total recall, if I can recall uh, correctly was, you know, I've write all this complex music, but it's like, nobody's, nobody's really hearing it and then nobody's really appreciating what he's doing. So, you know, why blow my brains out trying to write all these massive scores with all this intricacy and let's just kind of simplify things. But he still had the same emotional power, that, that, that dramatic instinct. And that always came through with his music, whether it was something, let's say, quote unquote, simple or something overly complicated. So yeah, it, it, it is amazing how, perspective can come into play and where you might have someone who grew up with film music since, you know, the fifties or sixties and grew up with Goldsmith. And then hearing that change through into the nineties might be, might be something wild or different or, or off-putting. But for people like, you know, you and I, it was just, Hey, this is Jerry Goldsmith. This is, this is, you know, he's fantastic. And the work that he's done in the nineties is awesome. So, you know, what else has he done? And that's fascinating to discover his earlier stuff after hearing the stuff from, from the nineties. And, and that's, what's so great about, you know, film music. I mean, there's just so much of it out there and, and the discoverability of it. I mean, I, I see these arguments all the time about, you know, Goldsmith and, 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 and his nineties music and just, I mean, there's people who literally say total recall. I'm done. I do not collect anything after that. And I'm like, wow, you're missing out on so much good stuff. Yeah. It's not wild and crazy like like Planet of the Apes, but it's still Jerry Goldsmith. How could you say no? Right. Well, why deprive yourself of it, right? Like why, I mean, why not just experience it all, right? I mean, why not just keep yourself open and, and say, okay, you know, judge it on its own merits. Why does it have to be compared to other things that he's done? I just don't, I I don't feel that, that, sir, that type of um, outlook serves me very well. I tend not to see a lot of movies, for example, like Poltergeist, as I mentioned, was my favorite score, right? Like I can hear Poltergeist, but it has that added um, element of being able to picture the movie at the same time. So it's the combination of two um, versus just listening to a score by itself where I can form my own emotional resonance on the piece itself, right? So, um, for example, uh, I can remember when they finally released the Goldsmith version of Legend, and I, you know, I was just ecstatic. 
because it was on CD and, you know, there was no digital music back then. And I was just, you know, over the moon to try and get it, you know, and it took a few weeks, but I've never seen the movie. I have no idea what the movie is about. I know there's a Tangerine Dream score and I haven't listened to that either, but to listen to Legend and, and just listen to it from a musical standpoint, I mean, it's amazing. What What's what's not to love about it? You know, and, and Darkness Falls, I mean, to have that eight and a half minute cut with the chorus in there and just, and then the ending of the cut is just, is that, that might be another theme is how, <laughs> for a future show is how, you know, who really brings it right at the end, right? That last 15 to 20 seconds. Uh, point being, it's, you know, you should, you should just listen to it, right? And, and try and keep an open mind. And um, a lot of times, the first time I listen to a soundtrack, I'm not paying attention to it. I've just got the earbuds on and I'm letting it play at a low volume. And sometimes the piece will just catch your ear and you go, okay, what track is this? Right. Let me, and, and you, then you really listen to it. That's kind of the way I listen to my music, right? It's one at a time and, um, and, and see whether I like it or not, you know, and sometimes they'll kind of be on the fence about it and you put it aside and you make a note to come back to it in a couple months and see if you feel a little bit differently about it. But yeah, I mean, I have no problem with any of his 90s stuff. None of it. Well, I mean, it's all good. Well, all this talk about listening, maybe we should listen to listen to a track finally. Um, but, you know, this it's, it's great to have this conversation with you. But we're going to open up your uh, choral playlist with, uh, with a banger. It's just a, a fantastic, fantastic cue. This comes from Jerry Goldsmith's Last-minute score, um, it is a replacement score, uh, written in 1995 for First Night. This is Arthur's Farewell.
All right, now we're moving on to another uh, choral piece. Uh, this is a, yeah, this is a classic 90s score right at the beginning of the 90s, written by Basil Polidorus for the John McTiernan action suspense thriller Hunt for Red October. And we're going to play for you the hymn to Red October, a, a classic choral uh, piece of music. Um, probably the best cue on, on the soundtrack. It's actually a score that I don't listen to that often. I'm not a huge fan of it as a whole, but this opening cue is uh, pretty magnificent. And so, uh, Steve, uh, tell us a little bit about why you uh, brought this cue to the show. So there was a large internal debate about this track because, of course... Uh, looking at submarine movies, the uh, competitor for this was Crimson Tide. Um, so um, I went back and forth and back and forth. Uh, a lot of the tracks on the Crimson Tide soundtracks tend to be overly long, um, you know, where they just cut up the cues to uh, put them into the movie. And I think that was the ultimate deciding factor was just the, the timing constraint. I mean... Nothing wrong with Crimson Tide. I thoroughly that would, in fact was my first exposure to Hans Zimmer was Crimson Tide. So um, you know I I love that score as well. So opted for the Polydorus, but um, more so for timing constraints. I mean it, it's there's nothing wrong with it. It's, it. it's nasty in itself, right? Like I mean the the chorus brings it right. Like the the male chorus is just rocking the whole time, and um, you know you can just it sets the tone perfectly for the for the movie and um don't really remember too much about the movie uh to tell you the truth but it felt like the next logical choice to follow up uh with the goldsmith i'm as i'm sure many 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 people have i've long relished in the playlist making right like going back to even cassettes right like i would have you you get your one blank cassette and you'd have, you know, nine other music cassettes and they were all queued up, ready to record the songs that you want. And you, and I'd sit there and you'd write, you'd sit there with a, <laughs> I'd sit there with a clock and you'd watch to see how long the actual song was. And you, I'd plan it all out. I was super anal retentive about uh, making playlists and I still am, but you know, that's part of the thrill to me. So um, in looking at this playlist, uh, you know, I gave it the same amount of attention in sort of like a, a, a cinematic flair, I guess, you know, you, you kind of, once you see a certain amount of movies, you kind of get a, a sense of how a movie works when you've seen say 10 horror movies or 50 horror movies, you kind of know how horror movies work, right? You start out with the kill and then you get introduced to the main character and yada, yada, yada. You kind of get the natural progression. And so in looking at the playlist, I feel like it kind of follows similar guidelines, although they're probably more internal to me, the way I want the resonance of the pieces to kind of work together, how I felt it was best. So, you know, you start off with the, with the raucous goldsmith piece and you go right into Polydorus and it felt like the next uh, logical choice to go with, so... I, I I love that you were extremely detailed with your 
playlist uh, selections, not just this one, but you know, when you were making mixtapes or like I, I was exactly the same way, just trying to find that right balance. Like I'd love creating what like, you know, the compilation albums, you know, there's a, there's a balance between a loud song and a quieter song or, you know, even paying attention to timing things out. One of the things that I would do is like, you know, you come near to the end of a tape and you're like, okay, well, how much time do I have left? And I want to get this four minute track on there, but it's only like three and a half minutes. And the only reason I can find out that it's three and a half minutes is like, I would play three and a half minutes of silence until the tape ends. And I'm like, okay, so now I've got to go find that, you know, three and a half minute track to fit in there. And I'm going to rejiggle, you know, my, my playlist and I've got it all written down on a pad of paper and whatever. And, you know, there was even a point you're talking about, you know, being incredibly anal when it comes down to the production of a, of a playlist is uh, where I magically found, and I'm not sure how I did it. I was, it used to tape from my boom box, my double cassette boom box. And I managed to find out how to eliminate that horrible stop sound. Like if you stopped a track, right. And then you started a new track, um, recording, you'd always, you'd always hear a stop in the tape. And, uh, I don't know how I did it, but I figured out a way that I can go back, you know, pause a recording and then play the, the, the master recording for lack of a better word, and then unpause it at a certain time. And it would, it, you'd have that silence between tracks without having, you know, that, that noisy break. And the thing is, nobody else was listening to this, but me, <laughs> but it annoyed the hell out of me. You know what I mean? It's like, why am I doing all this work? And, and then could you, I mean, were there times where like, you know, you're, you're, you're putting the tracks on the, on the cassette itself and, and you have to make it like as neat as possible or you color code it, or you kind of have to make sure that each letter is, you know, your, your lettering is small enough so that it all fits. It was making a playlist was like an art form for me. Absolutely. I mean, it was something satisfying about it, right? Like it, it fed the anal retentive you know, logical, uh, progressive side of me. Um, and, and then not just in making playlists, but like in so many things in my life, there are, you know, I, there are a lot of things that I like to apply that same type of logic, like that same sense of order. Right. And more often than not, it's again, just based on my own aesthetics more than anything else. Right. Like somebody could look at and go, well, why did you do that? And I went, well, you know, because it, it felt right to me, right? And and then that was all that mattered, right? So I guess in a weird sense, it, it was it was a type of expression, right? Like it was, okay, this is what matters to me and this is how I'm going to put it together because it's the way that resonates with me the most. I think the next logical question before we get to the track then is how do you organize your CDs? Uh, strictly by title. Okay. <laughs> so you're not, the, you're not like a soundtrack fan that puts all his, you know, the, the maroon colored Vrez spines in no. one spot or. No, 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 no. no. I, more than content with title. Yeah. It works. It, it's always worked. It's easy enough to relocate things when you get something new. Uh, title is more than happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, it's great to look at. I, I love seeing the pictures of, you know, people with their thousands of, of Verez albums where I'm like, how do you find anything? Like really? Um, but I'm by composer and then you're right. Like by title, sometimes it's by year. I mean, I'm all over the place, but as long as I know where all my, comp you know, the composers are, if I can find where the composers are, I'm happy. Um, cause usually you can just kind of sift through and, 
and find whatever. But yeah. Even for like trilogies, right? Like Empire Strikes Back is under E. Star Wars is under S. Return of the Jedi is under R, right? Now, is it all just like the holes or are are you organized by composer as well? Or is it just like title, like A to Z and that's it? That's it. Wow. A to Z, baby. Yep. Hey, you don't need it. anything more than that. Yeah, exactly. That's it. No, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> all right. Let's get to uh, our next piece. This is uh, Hymn to Red October by Basil Polidorus from uh, the 1990 submarine spy thriller, The Hunt for Red October. Oh. 
best music for film, TV and video games, this is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. And we're back with our guest, Steve Carpets. Uh, he is uh, one of our biggest uh, Patreon supporters, and if you want to s- help support the show, then please head over to patreon.com slash cinematic sound radio. Uh, there are Numerous tiers still open that you can join, and you can also um, help Cinematic Sound Radio by uh, doing so. Uh, unfortunately, the tier that Steve is in, um, uh, along with two other people, is not uh, available anymore. And uh, so we do appreciate that you uh, took the chance and um, wanted to uh, to get on the show and uh, and talk to me and, and talk about soundtracks and, and play your own uh, playlist. And we've got a we got another banger uh, up for you. This is from the 2003 uh, Matrix sequel called The Matrix Revolutions. Um, a, a real kind of disappointing end to this trilogy that started off oh so well with the with the first movie. But what wasn't disappointing was Don Davis's score. Um, I would say all three are classics. Um, unfortunately they are incredibly, um, I'd say underrated to even the mass, the, the general audience, you know, where scores like Howard Shore's The Lord of the Rings are constantly brought up and, 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 and rightfully so as being classics of that genre. And there's books that are written and, and expanded editions and this and that, and everybody loves The Lord of the Rings around that same time. Don Davis was was writing these incredibly experimental, uh, different scores, and not one of them got an Academy Award nomination. And I could see that being so off-putting to a composer. I mean, you know, awards don't mean everything, but when you write something this good, 
it, it just shocks me that the music branch said, no, we, uh, we don't really think that these are one of the five best scores of the year. And he ended it in such a, Don Davis did in such a spectacular fashion, uh, giving this third film, which again, to me was a, was a letdown, a score that it probably didn't deserve, but man, it went out in a blaze of glory. And we're going to play for you the, the choral masterpiece, Neo Demerung, um, which is just, I mean, probably one of the most memorable pieces of music from this, uh, series of movies. So, uh, Steve, tell us uh, a little bit about this track. So, um, as we talked about briefly earlier, um, in considering what tracks to put on, uh, it did, was very conscious of, uh, extended length tracks, but, uh, to me, I mean, this one was a no brainer. Um, I mean, is, as disappointing, um, as these movies were received, and to be honest, I haven't finished the third one ever. Um, <laughs> Don't worry. I wanted to walk out of the theater halfway through as well. But I mean, I managed to get through it. But yeah, anyway, I, I digress. <laughs> I mean, th- this track brings it. I have, I have since seen um, the music uh, put uh, to the movie uh, just on a YouTube clip. I, I watched the whole um I, I watch the I watch the music basically, right? Right. <laughs> just to yeah. kind of just to kind of get a little bit of context for it, um, and I mean it's it's everything you would hope for for the climax of a trilogy, right? Like it, the music brings exactly what it needed to do. It did its job and then some. And Again, the first time I heard it, I had no sense of context of what it was for. I knew it was towards the end of the third album, so I assumed it was um, climax related, and it, and it, it, you know, obviously was. But I mean, what a track! And and so, uh, despite its uh, extended length, I mean, this was just one that I went. If you haven't heard it, you got to hear it, right? You got to appreciate it. Um, it, it the chorus in in itself. Not not having seen the movie, I can't give you too much context. Um, I, I mean, I understand the oh, a lot of the Matrix had um, religious overtones and uh, allegory and stuff like that. Um, you know, whether that factored into his decision or not to put the chorus in, I don't know. Um, but I mean, as far as choral tracks go, I mean, the chorus um, is an absolute highlight, really. It, it yeah, it's an enormous track and i think you know again i i don't know whether don davis was was influenced by it but i mean we're coming off of john williams writing one of his greatest choral pieces for duel of the fates for you know the climactic lightsaber battle in uh and the phantom menace and don davis just one ups it with this track and the, here's the thing about the track is that it could easily have been um considered way too over the top almost to the point of being cheesy because of the way that this scene is is filmed in 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 portions where i mean really the slow motion um effect comes in in some really odd moments and it could almost be laughable to see some of it but for some reason i mean just the the setting you know, all the, the rain and this being the final duel between Neo and, um, 
Agent Smith. Agent Smith. And it's almost like the Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, you know, final battle. Although John Williams didn't go over the top with that, although he did introduce chorus, very dramatic chorus during um, during that lightsaber battle. But this was just the the battle to end all battles, and especially with everything else that's going on in the movie as well. It's just like it's overload. That's the that that's also another thing where this could have just been another noisy track amongst a whole bunch of other noise that's happening throughout this film, but. It's really the one of few quote unquote matrix styled scenes in this film. Um, and so I think that's why so many people like it, but the track is, is just absolutely incredible. And then when it was reworked into um, the end credit piece, Navarus, it's absolutely magnificent. And, and yeah, Don Davis Man, where is he? I, I'm just so sad to see him just kind of fall off the face of the earth kind of after this, these scores. But these are masterpieces. And it isn't up until maybe Christopher Willis with the the, the personal history of uh, David Copperfield a couple of years ago where we've heard this style of music again. So Don Davis really did something different that not too many have done uh, before or since. Yeah, um, I, I think what really made this track stand out for me um, is given the context uh, of, of all three movies and all three scores in particular, um, where so much of it was electronic based, to have a piece like this that came out with just a full-on orchestra uh, with the choral backing um was just i mean it was brilliant right like to to set it up and just go old school classic right here's your orchestra here's the trumpets in your face here's the chorus bringing it home um i mean it, it just the contrast made it stand out all the more for me and and, and um and again i mean this was just a no-brainer to put it on the list so uh, keeping it strong and hard with the heavy stuff. Uh, this was uh, from the internal uh, aesthetics. It just felt like the next natural progression. They really, 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 really hope everyone enjoys this one. <laughs> <laughs> I think they will. Uh, here's Don Davis's Neodemerung from The Matrix Revolutions.
Yeah, I mean, that track is just outstanding. Oh, it's freaking amazing. I remember hearing it for the first time, and I think I got the album only, I mean, the day that the movie came out, and me and two other buddies, we went to see this movie, and we were just blasting. I said, you guys got to play this track, and then you got to play this track. I know we have like maybe 20 minutes to get to the movie theater, so it's like, play this, and then play that, and we'll get we'll get pumped for it. And it was, yeah, it was absolutely incredible. Um, and I'm, I mean, again, I'm not all about the awards anymore, but it was just shocking, shocking at these, and nobody's writing books. Nobody's really celebrating these. Although, I mean, now where I think we're finally getting to, or, I mean, I know that Don Davis, was it Don Davis or was it David Newman? I know they conducted a live to picture a long time ago and I know they did the Matrix Symphony. I think that came That must've been amazing. Man, back to 2007. I think that opened up a, f- a film music um, festival. Movie Score Media released it, but it's like this doesn't get performed anymore. Nobody's remembering the major. And again, I think it's just because of how poorly the last two films were received. But that first one, oh my god, I would die to see that live. I think that would be fantastic. The orchestra would just hate it. And like I said, I haven't. I have probably seen maybe the first half hour of the third one. So. Any context I have for uh, that soundtrack is, you know, strictly internal. It had nothing to do with the movie. Even after watching that end scene, I still, when I think about, when I play that song in my head, like I don't think about the movie in association with that song at all. It's all, you know, where I was and what I was doing the time I heard it and um, just that type of emotional memory rather than as opposed to associating it with the movie. So, Well, coming out of that... We are now going to listen to, well, if you're familiar with the podcast, you know how excited I am about not only the music from this film, but from the film itself. It's the 2013 remake of Evil Dead, and it features one of my favorite scores of the last 13, 15 years. I think it's one of the greatest horror scores ever composed by Roque Banos. And, you know, we were talking earlier about context. And I remember hearing this, as I do with most of the soundtracks that I have, you know, before seeing the, the movie. And so when I heard the air raid siren that was employed into this score, um, now you might not have had the same experience, but then I was like, well, what in the world does that represent in the movie? I mean, it did conjure visuals in my mind without having seen the movie, but then I was like, I have got to figure out why, why that was added. And especially when you hear it in this track, uh, Abominations Rising, which is one of the greatest cues I think of all time. And I'm, it's not an exaggeration. Um, but when I found out, you know, why Banos used it, because it was a sound that's terrified him when he was a kid, hearing police sirens and fire trucks going past his his bedroom window. And so that association of being scared as a kid, he was able to employ it into his score. And I, I haven't heard anything like this before in my in my life. And but then of course just the the incredible orchestral writing and then the, the choral um Music, you know, seeing Banos conduct this um, during a, a film music festival as well, just 
knowing how much fun he had writing this score, and then you could see it even on the faces of the the chorus, that they're just having a blast, and then the, the orchestra is like, what is this? What's going on? Where are these sounds? We don't get too many scores like this, um, except maybe only in the horror genre, where the orchestra is still employed and still allowed to tell the story. And so I'm so glad that you brought this track. I would love to play Evil Dead on each and every show, but I'd like to hear what your uh, thoughts are about this score and this track. This was, uh, this score was probably one of the exceptions in the sense that I actually did see it with the context of the movie before I listened to it in its entirety. Um, that being said, I mean, it's still a knockout standout track. The energy is relentless. It's all over the place. It's everything you would want in this crazy chaos kind of ending, um, you know, perfectly uh, synced up uh, with what's going on at the screen at the same time. Um, you know, you've got that, the, the chorus, you've got that bit where it's almost like they're just like not so much yelling, but like they're, 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 sh- they, well, maybe, maybe they, they are, are shouting, yelling, but <laughs> yeah, right. And, and to me, like when I listen to that, I think it, it reminds me of the style of like the Greek choruses, right? In the old um, traditional style of, of Greek theater, where the chorus was standing behind and telling part of the tale, right? They were uh, a character in it. And the style just reminded me of that, where, um, you know, I mean, it's obviously in Latin, so we, I have no idea what they were saying, but. Um, mm. I mean, the chorus is super effective in this, and they they drive it home, right? Like the not to take anything away from the orchestral part of it, because you know the, there's that, um, like you said, there's the air siren, and then there's that. I don't know the name of the instrument, but it's like the, it's like a rattle, right? Like it's like yeah, just yeah. marbles in the thing on the stick, and they yeah. spin it around, and it just kind of makes that ratchety noise, like like something you'd have on New Year's Eve, right? Like a mm-hmm. rattler or whatever they call it, right? It's something, as you alluded to, that um, you know, horror movies excel at. Just keeping it raw, keeping it fresh, and just being a part of the story, um, which so many good soundtracks do. I mean, I, 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 we haven't talked about this, but I, I'm already going to take it as read that like horror movies are probably, for me at least, are my favorite genre of scores, hands down. You know, we grew up on horror movies. My mother seemed to not have a problem with me watching horror movies I mean, she watched them with us which was fine we didn't freak out after the first few ones i was just talking with my mother about this the other day there was this movie i think it was called the hand yeah it's just this guy somehow like he his hand gets decapitated and becomes possessed and stuff like that but it was the really truly first visceral horror scene i had ever seen um, because the way it happens is that he's driving, um, and he sticks his hand out of a window and a car comes the other way and it just, you know, takes the hand off. And, you know, I was seven, eight or whatever, but, but you know, it, it stuck out in my mind, right? You know, I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen Halloween or anything like that at that point. Um, so, um, you know, I think my mother probably sat on the couch and, 
watched my reaction and when she saw I didn't freak out was like okay you know I guess <laughs> I guess horror movies are okay for them so it's you um, know it's 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 insane because I I will see many stories like even whether it's on YouTube where people are reviewing past horror movies that they saw as as kids and some of the movies that they were able to see when they were like eight nine ten years old and I'm like I didn't see my first horror movie until I went to a, a hockey. Um, it wasn't a banquet, but it was just um, it was a day where we all got together. We played some road hockey um, in the morning, and then we went back and had a party at somebody's house, and we watched some movies. I was ten, could have been maybe a little bit older, but I'd never seen like a horror movie before. I was shielded from it. Not that my, you know, my my parents were like, "Oh, you can't watch this, you can't watch that," but they were conscious about you know, the, the MPAA ratings on boxes. And so, you know, anytime we, we rented movies, it was like, oh, there's one for the kids. And then there's one for the adults. I, I, I mean, one of the first, um, like adult films that I saw was like Die Hard, And I was like, what is this? This is incredible. Um, and I saw that as a teenager, but like horror movies, I saw, um, demons. And that was the first one I ever saw. And it just, it ruined me. <laughs> watching <laughs> I ran out of that room. Like we were watching them with my team and they're, and I'm, I'm watching this and there's a portion where the, you know, the lady puts on this demonic mask and she gets scratched on her cheek. And then later that becomes in, infected during that same uh, day. And she goes in the bathroom and basically her, her cheek explodes. And I'm like, I'm like, what is happening? What is going on? Why are, and then she turns into a demon, kills a whole bunch of people. There's blood and guts all over the place. I'm like, I can't deal with it. I ran out of the room and I was just crying. And I'm like, take me home. Call my parents. I have to leave. Well, um, I stuck around. <laughs> my parents are <laughs> like, I can't come get you now. And they're like, okay, fine. We'll turn off demons. We'll put on Friday the 13th part six. No. <laughs> I'm like, okay. And so again, that one just stuck with me. And I'm, and, but that didn't freak me out as much as it was just like, who are these? What is this? I've heard of Jason before. I've heard of Freddie before. I've heard of, um, you know, Michael Myers, but now I'm actually watching it. And, and those experiences just, they just stick with you. And so from that point on, I was like, I'm never watching another horror movie again. And of course that changed, but still, you know, watching something like Poltergeist at two o'clock in the morning on television and, you know, you're alone in your dark basement. And I, I got halfway through that movie. I'm like, nope. I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I mean, it's one of the part when he's peeling his face off and piece of steak's moving no, on. Classic. Like, it's classic now. I love it. I absolutely love it. But it was a genre, unlike you and like a lot of people <laughs> who are our age that seemed to have watched these movies when they were like toddlers. <laughs> and I, you know, I had kids down the street from me, like, yeah, he this kid watches Robocop, he watches all these other films. I'm like, and this is my brother's friends. My brother's like five years younger than I am. And like, it's like a six year old watching RoboCop. And I'm like, I haven't even seen RoboCop. So I've never had a problem with it, but I totally see the other side of the coin, right? Like some people it's, it, it, it is an acquired taste, right? Like, um, my kids don't have a problem with it. And, um, you know, they, I, I don't remember the first horror movie I saw with them. Maybe it was Evil Dead 2. Um, and so I, I think you could do really a lot worse than Evil Dead 2 is your first horror movie. Um, you know, and my son was, I don't know, 11. And so, you know, he was old enough to understand. 
And, you know, I mean, Evil Dead 2 is, it, I mean, it's part slapstick, right? So, I mean, the horror is there and it's shocking and it's, you know, brilliantly done. But, um, you know, it, it was definitely, it, it's a tongue-in-cheek kind of movie, you know, that, you know, whatever's happened when he takes, the, you know, the chainsaw and he cuts his hand off, you know, he's just cutting, you know, he's just running a chainsaw off camera so you can hear the noise and they spray some blood up on this. So unlike this remake though, <laughs> it's just everything's practical. Everything's in your face. You know, this last scene with this music is all just dripping blood for eight minutes. No holds barred. <laughs> they didn't hold back. No, no. And, and, and the music is right there with them. Um, uh, as he talked about, you know, the, the chorus is, is front and center for a lot of it and it's driving it. And, um, there's a lot of dissonance in the music. Um, you know, the strings are are vibrating furiously. I know there's a technical term for it, but um, the staccato maybe, I don't know. No, there's a real kind of like, um, there's a heartbeat to this piece. It really does add to the nervousness of this scene. You're, you're hoping that she's going to get away and she's struggling. And again, if this could all be just totally silly and out of place, but then the music comes in and it just adds the right amount of drama, uh, scares, but it's also a whole lot of fun. I mean, when that air raid siren comes in, uh, we know when the car smashes on her arm and then she has to rip her arm off. And you can just tell that, you know, the air raid sirens kind of like, you know, what's going through her mind, you know, the horror of the, the experience and of that moment. And she knows that she has to do something to escape and but she can't and you know the car is literally on her arm the demon is coming towards her it's like she's got to make a decision and this air raid sirens just ramping up ramping up and it's almost as if like it's inside her head the situation that she's in and she has to make this horrific decision to rip off her own arm to escape and i absolutely love those things and adding those that extra bit of context to the scene I love the movie. Uh, a lot of people don't like it because that kind of slapstick comedic element is pretty much gone. But I think that's what's so great about the remake is that it's not just another rehash of what Raimi did with his Evil Dead films. And the score couldn't be any more different than what uh, LaDuca was doing. I mean, you, knowing what I know about Evil Dead 2, from what I understand, they didn't have a very large budget to work off of. So... Um, you weren't going to get the type of um, grand orchestral pieces that you get out of uh, out of a lot of the typical horror movies. Although, you know, of course, John Carpenter uh, wrote all his own themes and made all his own music and stuff like that. So you didn't need a big budget to make something, you know, iconic, um, I guess. But in today's digitally enhanced days, not to say that, I mean, I don't know if they used an actual orchestra or not, but I mean, it's easy easy enough to synthesize what you need um even if you don't have the budget so you would expect um the grandiose to be there especially given the nature of this as compared to the first one right like the movie took itself seriously and then the music wanted you to know that and and you know it was all building towards that last scene and uh the piece is just married to the movie perfectly it's just great it's outstanding. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. This uh, this score actually uh, 
won some awards with the International Film Music Critics Association. It uh, won for Best Original Score for Sci-Fi, uh, sorry, not Sci-Fi, for Fantasy and Science Fiction Horror Film. And it also won the Film Music Composition of the Year for this track. This is Roque Baños's Abominations Rising.
We will end our first part of our conversation with Steve Carpets right there. We have much more to discuss, and you'll hear that on part two of this episode. Uh, looking at the edit right now, there's about an hour-long conversation left to kind of cut down. There's music in between there. So I didn't want this program to be two and a half hours, three hours long. So I'm going to cut it around the 90-minute mark, and we'll come back to this conversation on a later date. But I do want to thank Steve for uh, stopping by, for taking the time to chat with me, and and I hope you all look forward to the second part of this conversation, which will be on the show at a future date. I really hope you enjoyed the program today, and we will leave you with more music from Roque Banos's brilliant score to Evil Dead, released in 2013. This is the track, The Pendant and Evil Tango. The original soundtrack recording was released on La La Land Records. Thanks again for tuning in, folks. I really hope you enjoyed the program. And until next time, take care and happy listening.
Thank you for tuning in to the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. I want to thank Tim Burton for providing his voice for all the bumpers and stingers you hear throughout the show, and to David Casina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's intro music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media at Sound Radio on Twitter, at Cinematic Sound on Facebook, and from wherever you're listening to us today, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review. Reviews help introduce potential new listeners to the show. While you're at it, head over to TeePublic to find yourself a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt and support us on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash cinematicsoundradio. And don't forget to check out Cinematic Sound Radio at cinematicsound.net. <laughs>